All right, today we're going to be in Matthew 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for they are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Thanks. You may be seated. Good morning. I'm going to do a little test here to see uh, what generation you came from. Who in here knew who Aaron Neville was? Oh, yeah, see? If you're 40 or older, you probably knew who Aaron Neville was. <laughs> well, you have to like music to like Aaron Neville. All right. Cool. <laughs> Welcome to Anthem Coeur d'Alene, everybody. Glad you're here this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 22, like Caitlin just read. And uh, this morning, we're going to be in this passage that it, if any of you grew up in the church or around the church, it's a passage that you've heard over and over again. And when you get older, there's these passages that you begin to read for yourself, and you soon discover as you get older that the way they were taught or the way you thought they were taught when you were kids isn't actually the way they were written, and then all of a sudden you get older and you begin to realize, oh, given the context of that passage and who Jesus is talking to, what he's referencing, what we're coming out of in the book of Matthew uh, at this moment uh, in time, doesn't make sense that we teach it the way we do. And so oftentimes growing up, this passage was used to teach people like to encourage people to pay their taxes and tithes to the church. Anybody hear that before? And then you read this and you're like, well, that's not really what Jesus is referencing. And, and so this morning as we get into this, I'm going to talk about this encounter that Jesus has with these two groups of people that come to him asking him this question. And so let me pray for us and then we'll dive in. Jesus, I thank you uh, for your word. I thank you for the privilege to stand before your church and to try my best to communicate and teach it. We ask, Jesus, that your spirit would do what we cannot, and that would be open the hearts of those that are here. God, you know the condition of each heart. You know the state of each life in this room. And God, you know exactly what people need to hear. Lord, you know exactly how to speak directly to uh, their, their hearts this morning. And so I invite you, Jesus, to have your way with us, Lord, to take your word, to plant it in our hearts, to teach us from it this morning, and not in a way, God, that we would just puff up our knowledge and learn more, but in a way, Jesus, that actually impacts the way we live after we leave these walls this morning. And so we give you this time, Jesus, and we devote it to you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Awesome. So I was reading through uh, the, this past week the oath that you have to swear uh, when you become a U.S. citizen, and it goes something like this. Listen to this. If any of you have become U.S. citizens... You've, you've said this, you've swore by this oath, but it says, I hereby declare an oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure 
all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have herefore been a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and the laws of the United States. And it goes on from there. I haven't spent a ton of time reading that or studying that in the past, but one of the things that stuck out to me when I was reading this this past week um, is the fact that you, it's not asking you to give up your prior citizenship when you, um, when you say this oath. But what they're asking you to do is be willing to do so. And the reason that they do this is because they want you to know that if something ever happened where you were put in a position where you actually had to choose where your allegiance lie, that the, the U.S. would want to know that you choose your U.S. Citizen, citizenship over the citizenship from the place that you came from. And so there's this recognition that, that people could have a divided allegiance to, to two different sovereignties. But if push comes to shove, which one do you, shoot, do you choose? Like, which allegiance actually wins out? And so the, the context of this passage today isn't too dissimilar from this, right? There's this division of allegiance that's brought Jesus um, to, that's been, that, that is brought to Jesus as he faces this particular question, which is one of a series of encounters that Jesus has to kind of catch him to see if he's gonna lie, to see if they can trip him up. Again, this is the road to Jesus' death, to his execution. They're looking for any way they can find to get Jesus executed. And so there's two people that are represented in this passage that, that are stated, the Pharisees and then the Herodians. And so the, the Pharisees believed that having to pay taxes to Caesar was actually an infringement upon Jewish law. They, they believed that, that they were under God and under the authority of God only. The Herodians, on the other hand, were the small group of Jews, uh, Jewish people that were, members, uh, that were loyal to the members of Herod's family who were in rulership at this time. So this group of people, though Jewish, were actually under Herod, and they were happy to be under Herod and under Herod's authority, even though they were Jewish people. And so the issue here that's being addressed is, what authority would Jesus recognize? Where will Jesus give his allegiance when push comes to shove? Where would his allegiance land when, when Jesus is confronted? And so at the end of the day, they just wanted Jesus to pick a side, like choose a side. Sounds like the last two years of American history, correct? Pick a side, like which side are you on? Like at the end of the day, I just want to know if you stand with me or you stand against me. And so these Pharisees, in some sense, uh, were putting on this pretense of righteousness, right? To, to make it seem like what they were asking for was allegiance to God and for God to be the one who's on the throne, but what they really wanted was power so that they could be in control and that their religious structure, their systems that they had put in place would become the primary system that was in charge. And so the Pharisees were looking for this political figure, one that would like liberate them from the impression of Rome. That's what the, the Pharisees were looking for. And it's interesting because history shows that, that Jesus' followers often behaved worse Worse, when they were possessed, uh, when they possessed some sort of a political power, like they, they kind of go off the path, rather than when they're being persecuted by it. So when they possess power, they act differently than when they're persecuted 
by power. And it's interesting when Christians are persecuted or oppressed, if our first solution to circumstances in the midst of, in the midst of oppression or persecution is for us to try to gain political power, is for us to try to um, beat the oppressor, if, if that becomes our agenda, then we're not much different than some of these groups that are talked about in this passage. We're just wanting to fight the ones who are in power. Now the Herodians, on the other hand, they also wanted to be on the winning side, right? They, they wanted Jesus to choose their allegiance. That They wanted to be in the place where, uh, where the, the, the side that they were on was actually the side that was in power. And so what the Herodians did was they gave up some of their own convictions in order to actually become more like the Roman Empire. So they, they submitted to Rome. They, they thought the easiest way for them to be on the winning side was to pick the side who had already won, was basically their tactic. And so both of these sides come to Jesus and they ask him to choose a side. And so the, this passage says that they came maliciously, like to test Jesus. In verse 18 it says, but Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you what? What's he call them? Hypocrites is what he says. So what's a hypocrite? It's a word that literally means actor, right? It means you're acting in a certain way, you're saying one thing, but you're doing another. You're two-faced. And so Jesus sort of calls them out on it. And it's important that we notice that Jesus knows what they're trying to do. Like, they're also facetiously saying, we know that you're true and that you teach the way of God truthfully. And now, do they actually believe that? They're kind of trying to butter Jesus up, right? They're trying to get him to be okay with what it is that they're doing. And so the first thing that Jesus does is he changes the game. Like, he basically goes, hey, I'm not going to play by your rules. You want me to choose a side. Like, he's not going to choose a side. Jesus doesn't play the game of partisan politics in this particular situation. He doesn't get on a side. And e even under, like, really oppressive Roman rule, he, 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 he could very easily have done that, just chosen a side. So remember when the first century believers heard the phrase kingdom of God, or they heard this phrase kingdom of heaven, their minds didn't go to like one day in heaven, a place that we'll go to after death necessarily. They, they expected the, the authority of God, right, to come. And for God's appointed person, like a ruler, to come, to break the oppressive ruler of the Romans that was happening in their lifetime. And so their longing was for the kingdom of God, for freedom, their longing was for justice, their longing was for their escape from these oppressors, but the question in their hearts was, how's God actually going to accomplish this? How's he gonna get us out from underneath the Roman rule? And really, they were all longing for the same thing, right? But, but how was it that God would actually do it was the question being asked. And so these two particular parties that we see here that we're talking about, the Pharisees and the Herodians, both had two different ideas of how this could actually pan out. There were a number of groups like this in Jesus' day that are referenced throughout the Gospels as we read through them. There was the Zealots. And the Zealots believed that a revolt and overthrowing Rome and being prepared to do so violently was the way to go. Like they just need to take the bull by the horns and get him out. 
Then you have the, a group referred to as the Essenes, and they believed that the best way was to actually withdraw, like to completely separate themselves so that you could remain uncorrupted by the culture that they were within. So they withdrew. And then you have this other group, the Sadducees. And the Sadducees thought that, that change would come through these current Roman systems, and so they sort of assimilated into the culture, and they began to partner with Rome. And so you see all these political factions taking place, kind of wanting to get to the same place, but with very different agendas. And so Jesus would say things like, if you're asked to walk a mile in someone's shoes, Jesus says what? Go two miles. And that freaks the zealots out, right? Because they're like, no, just, they're, they're all about taking charge, man, just making it happen. What are you talking about, going two miles? And so for the Essenes, they would have thought like, no way. But yet Jesus would work with sinners. Jesus would literally touch lepers. He would mix with the unclean culture that they were in. And, and he was called a drunkard. And that certainly went against this idea of withdrawing from the culture as the Essenes did. And so he, he perpetually offended these groups of people who had these sort of preconceived ideas of how liberation would actually come for them. And so he presses against it because Jesus sort of keeps changing the game. And it was sort of as if these, these groups only saw the solutions really in two dimensions, right? And so Jesus says, you don't understand. You're basically playing in the wrong field. And they say, you're true. You're wise. Should you pay taxes to Caesar? It's the question that they're asking Jesus. And Jesus knows that if he says yes, he'll offend the zealots. He'll offend the Essenes, he'll offend the Pharisees, but if he says no, he'll be opposing the Roman government that he's technically under, and then he would be called this rebel and become an enemy of the Sadducees and an enemy of Rome itself, and so Jesus is sort of stuck between this rock and a hard place. And so more importantly, if he said yes or no, he, he would be doing something he did not come to do side with political powers and worldly agendas. He didn't come for that. He, he'd be engaging in these, these kingdoms of the world and he'd be using weapons of this world in a way that sort of elevates these weapons as the hope of the world, right? It elevates these weapons and these agendas as this hope of a future and it makes them into these sort of like idolatrous ent uh, entities within which like, we place our hope and our trust. And so Jesus couldn't say yes, and Jesus couldn't say no because that was not what he was called to do. In Psalm 121, there's this declaration regarding this exact thing. It says, and when I am in trouble, where do I run to? Where do I place my hope? And the psalmist goes on to say, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? It comes from the maker, the God, the creator of heaven and earth. In other words, our, respond, our response isn't, well, you know, Christianity should be a political power. That's how we're going to actually get ahead in this game. It also shouldn't be that, that, that we should just be at peace with our government and do every single thing that the government tells us to do because that's going to be the best thing for us. 
And it also shouldn't be that we need a free market system or some sort of socialist system. It also shouldn't be that we don't care about the government at all because we trust in our own way of providing our own resources and our own finances because none of these things will ultimately be able to save us and carry the weight of hope, will they? None of them. And so in order to address this whole situation, Jesus does something brilliant, right? He says to them, bring me a coin, is what Jesus says. And so now this particular tax that's being referred to would be the tax that's paid to the government. And this tax, in essence, was, was sort of oppressive to the Jewish people. It was a recognition that they were under Roman power because they were paying taxes to the Romans as Jews. And this is really important for us to remember because the question from the Pharisees in particular is, Jesus, do you support these oppressors? Do you support them? Do you support the people who are literally persecuting your people? And instead of picking a side, Jesus does something that is so genius. Like Jesus sort of risks offending both sides. Not because he tries to, not because that's sort of Jesus' strategy, um, or, or as though it's some kind of new way to be a cool Christian. It's just to like offend everybody. But Jesus is actually acting according to what they said. He's, he's saying, he's giving them the response that they looked for. They said, we know you're true. We know we will find truth with you. And Jesus actually responds truthfully. He says, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, it's Caesar's. And then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. So now we're gonna pass the plate this morning so you can render to God what is God's, right? We got a building to pay for, people. Like, it's just not even what Jesus is talking about. Interesting to even think about the fact that, I don't know if Jesus himself had a coin on him or not, but he doesn't pull one out of his own pocket. He actually asks if somebody else has one. And it's not necessarily something that's answered in this text, but we know that he asks them for a coin, and he does this for a really specific reason, right? Some scholars believe that he asked them for the coin because he demonstrated that they themselves rely on the system that Rome has put in place for their living and for their sustenance. If they give him a coin, it means that they themselves have submitted to that system. Interesting. So hand me a coin. Basically, Jesus is making the statement that, that, that their day-to-day existence was actually provided for by Rome, and he's expecting them to recognize that there's an honor and and a respect and tax due to the government that's actually been placed over them. One author says this, Jesus asked for a coin not because he did not possess one, but so as to demonstrate that they themselves used Caesar's money. The silver denarius which bore Caesar's head on one side, and on the other side the goddess of peace with the inscription Tiberius, Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, chief priest. And this is important because he says to them, give me a coin. 
And then they hand him a coin. In other words, that they had already lived under the provision and the ways of Rome. They had the coin in their possession, and they give one to Jesus. And so the issue here is actually the likeness, the image that's engraved on this coin. Because the Jewish nation was not to make anything or to buy anything or subscribe to anything other than the likeness and the image of God. And so to carry a coin that had Caesar's inscription on it was almost idolatrous. It was idolatrous. And the Jews believed that, right, there's this, this temple that was established and this temple was a place of worship, and when they would go to the temple, they would worship God. They would literally announce, they would give their allegiance to God, like he is the one true God. Like that was part of going to the temple. It was like all wrapped up, the forgiveness of their sins, right? It was all wrapped up in paying their allegiance and their time and, and, and even their treasures back to God, the God who created all things as they believed. But when you leave the temple, what they would believe was that you were literally displaying the image of God that was worshiped within the temple. So when you leave the temple, it's now the image of God is actually displayed amongst you. And so the last thing that God created was what? It was man. And the word says that he puts his image in human beings, like upon us. And this is what God draws on. He says that they carried the coins of Caesar. Like you're already living in this world. You're already honoring this world. And that actually doesn't make you a bad person. So Jesus sort of affirms that it was necessary in the time that they were living in to pay to Caesar what was Caesar's. But you can hear him, right? But Jesus, like they use our tax dollars for ungodly things and they oppress your people. And Jesus is sort of like, yeah, but you're actually under that government. You should understand what respect and honor looks like. But, but Jesus, they, they literally use those funds to wage wars, to take over lands, groups, people, to oppress others. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's true. But you should pay them what's due to them as God has allowed them to be in rule over you. And honestly, th this was a controversial statement for Jesus, Jesus to make. I mean, we see this panning out in our day and age probably more now in my lifetime than ever before. I'm not gonna give to the government. You know what they're gonna do with that money? You know, it's like, well, he straight up says here, like, pay to Caesar what's Caesar's, and, and to God what's God's. And so Jesus makes this, this controversial statement, and, and Jesus was making this to those who believe that any sort of oppressive government is sort of worth nothing at all. And then he adds this, and this is where he kind of levels the playing field. Like, Jesus could have just left it there, but he adds this, give to God what's his. Like, the, the word here is actually render to Caesar and render to God. And, and this word render is a word that really means give back to Caesar what is his and give back to God what is God's. It's really an interesting word, and what's so cool is that there's this sort of restoration that's implied in this word render. Like Jesus sort of understood the culture that he's in and he understands that there's a way that human life works with government and, and all the complexities that go along with that. And he says, give to Caesar what is due to Caesar. And now, 
we can criticize the, the work of government, right? We can criticize, we, we can seek change, and we should seek change. We, we actually should, should seek renewal, but that doesn't mean you stop giving what is due in our day. I don't know if you guys ever remember, uh, there was a guy that traveled around for a while that um, was encouraging Christians to not pay taxes, and he traveled around to churches, and he'd be like, yeah, you don't have to pay taxes, you know, like, forget the government, and you live under God's rule, and then, like, years later, the guy got busted by the IRS and ended up going to prison because he didn't pay his taxes for, like, a decade. Like, there are repercussions for you not actually giving back what you're supposed to give back to the government. But what we know is that the Reformation, like some of even our own government, the separation of church and state, like all these things have been impacted by this passage over the years. But what's interesting is that this isn't the main point. It's not the only point that Jesus is making because yes, Jesus was telling us that we sort of have this civil responsibility, right? He, he makes this ultimate claim, though, that transcends this little claim of giving to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, and that claim was this. Ultimately, we bear the image of God. Every human being bears the image of God. And, and we're to be returned and given where we are due, just like where the taxes are due. And it's so cool when you think about this. You were marked with the image of God the minute God created you. Give to God what is God's. Like God wants what's his back. And it's not in the form of coins and dollar bills. It's not in the form of material possessions and things you kind of gather and collect on this earth. And they're asking Jesus, like, Jesus, do you support this government? Do, do you look for hope, Jesus, in this government? And Jesus says, yeah, I mean, I submit to it in some sense, but my belonging, like my, my home, like you need to understand, my home is first, my belonging is first and foremost to my Father in heaven, and so is yours. So he says, give to God what's actually God's, and so he's referring to this image of God that's actually in every human being. And so through this statement, he's also saying this. Remember that whatever fear you have of Caesar, whatever fear you might have of Rome, whatever fear you might have of American politics, whatever it is, remember that you need to submit to Caesar who himself bears the image of God and should be given back to God. I mean, we get all in a tussle about like American politics and I don't want that side to win, I want this side to win, yada, yada, yada. And in the midst of that somewhere, we fail to forget that we're all human beings, all marked with the image of God and God wants what's his. I don't care what side you're on, he wants the heart of every individual that walks this earth. Pray for whoever that is that's in power intercede for those people, pray that God would get those people back. And Jesus is saying, there are some things that are not Caesar's. There are some things that don't belong to Caesar. This little coin is his. Give him his coin. But some things don't belong to the government, right? Some things don't belong to those who are in power. 
And we need to be careful as to what we give. And he's saying honor and respect and submission and taxes belong to the government, but the value of a life, of a human life, it does not belong to Caesar. That life does not have Caesar's inscription on it. It actually belongs to God. He's saying that respect and generous submission like actually belongs to the government, but that worship doesn't belong to the government, right? Worship doesn't belong to Caesar. It belongs to God. He's, he's saying that our organization, our, our corporation, belongs to these ruling bodies in the United States of America on this earth. But church, our hope, our, our hearts, where we place our trust, can actually never belong to the American government. It can never belong to Caesar. It can never belong to the authorities that are put over us because it's God's first. And so Jesus, oddly enough, is honoring the government, but then he's also removing this political divide that existed between people, right? Because these sides wanted each other's sides, and they wanted people to choose a side, and Jesus doesn't choose a side. And so Jesus is sort of like uniting humanity, right, through this greater common denominator, which is actually the inscription that's on their hearts. Like, they're marked. And that's where we, we all carry this image of God. We all belong to God, and Jesus sort of reforms, and he sort of breaks down these divisions that have divided people through the statement, and the passage ends with this. When they heard it, they what? They marveled. And they left him, and they went away. So they walk away, literally marveling at Jesus' response. Like, in Jesus, all these political powers and all these rulers sort of met their match, right? In Jesus, the, the political divisions in our hearts and our families and our nation they actually find their place. And so we see these two massive responses that come from Jesus in this particular passage, and I'll leave you with these. The first is this, is that he makes sure that every human being understands this. That, that firstly, as a priority, above all else, you belong to God. First and foremost, you belong to God. And, and then the implication of that is that you bear the image of God and that our responsibility and the way we walk this out should actually be properly ordered like in our hearts and in our hopes and in our lives and in our allegiance to him and him only. And so we need to practice giving ourselves back to Jesus as he demands in this passage and to give ourselves to God as the one whose image we bear day after day. Church, it is vital that we remind ourselves of this, that we first and foremost, above all things, above all other allegiances in your life, you belong to God. Like, like I started with that section of, with that vow that, 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 that you make as a U.S. citizen, right? That, that you can say, like, I'm, I'm giving my citizenship here, but you also have your citizenship somewhere else. And at the end of the day, if push comes to shove, where's your actual allegiance? And Jesus is like, Allegiance isn't with Caesar. It's not on as a Herodian. It's not as a Pharisee, a zealot, a Sadducee, a Essene. Like your allegiance is actually to God and God only. 
and we as the church, like, we need to daily surrender and consecrate our lives. We need to trust him and his ways for all the areas of our lives. And so the implication sort of in this question is this. What parts of your life do you need to give back to God because you've taken them from him? What parts of your life have you given to him and parts of your life have you chosen to keep for yourself because you didn't feel like you could trust God with that? There's things that you want to do on your own time and your own way. And so God can't really have everything, but God can have my Sunday mornings from, you know, 9.30 to noon. God can have my worship. God can have my devotional time, but he's not going to get my time at the office or my time with my family or my relational time. God's not going to get all these other acts. Like, what things are you withholding from God? And so for some of us, we, we've literally taken particular areas of our lives and we think that they're better served in our hands. Like, we can do better with them than God can. And it's easy to sort of get to a place where you find your hope and your fulfillment in all of these things and not trust God in the areas of your finances and and your workplace and your relationships. Like, what part of our lives do we need to give back to God when he says, render to God what is God's? What parts of your life have you withheld from him? And the second implication is this, and this one's like, this one hits me. We have to be able to see our enemies differently. So Jesus faces these these two opposing groups, right? And they walk away marveling, marveling that Jesus was able to bridge the divide that, that they were trying to create. And so they, they come to Jesus maliciously and they're, they're trying to create division. They're trying to create hostility. They're trying to sort of trip Jesus up. And Jesus is able to just kind of masterfully break down that divide and leave them in the same place marveling together. Isn't that crazy? We don't see eye to eye on a lot of things, but we can marvel over what just happened. <laughs> we can come together on something. And in Jesus' response, he, he sort of calls us to recognize that all humans bear the image of God. All humans belong to God. He has massive implications for the responsibility that we have towards every human being. And, and this teaching, if you think about it, it fits perfectly into Jesus' teaching on loving your neighbor and your enemy, like months ago when we were there. Like if we believe that we're all made in God's image, that, that, that we're all worth the dignity of life, then that means that we believe that even for the people that we completely disagree with, that they still bear the image of God, like that they were created by him. So who in your life today do you need to be reminded of that they carry the image of God? And that literally your response to them is a response to the image of God. Because what I see a lot today is people dividing over earthly things. Politics, government. Go down the list of things that masks, no mask, vax, no vax. Like there's all these things that are dividing us. And we pin ourselves against each other so much so that we stop seeing the fact that a human life is a human life that God created, and a human life is a human life that actually bears the image of God, and a human life is a human life that at some point God wishes he could have back, even if they've walked away. That's God's heart. 
once it's his, it's, it's his. But at some point in somebody's life, we pray that they acknowledge Jesus as their only Savior and they turn their hearts and their lives over to him. And man, as a pastor, it grieves me so much to watch so much division between people within the church, outside of the church, literally allowing everything that's taking place on this earth in our, this kind of moment right now culturally to divide us to the point where we stop seeing people as sons and daughters of the Most High God. And we start treating people like enemies versus treating them as people that God wants back. You want to talk about the most fruitful evangelistic opportunity that's ever happened in human history, you're living in it. Like You're living in the days that the prophets of old and that the forefathers of our faith prayed to see you're living it. And the way we're going to live it is not by standing on sides and pointing the fingers at one another and finding fault in everybody, but actually having a heart like Jesus's that desires to Love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love our neighbor as ourselves. I'll ask the, the worship team to come up here. Um, this historian, Philip Jenkins, said this. Listen to this quote. Because honestly, I've been talking to so many people about the state of our city right now that there's parts of it that really grieve my heart because, man, just to be honest, growing up in Kootenai County, this was always like a lower class community. It was not affluent. Like I did not grow up around tons of money and million dollar houses in this town. It was $40,000 to buy a house downtown when I was a kid. And I wonder what the state of the church looks like when the church becomes affluent and doesn't know what they actually need God for when they've provided everything for themselves. It's a scary time. And this historian said this, he said, Christianity is flourishing wonderfully among the poor and the persecuted while it atrophies among the rich and secure. So Jesus lived this out in a way that all of us in this room can learn from, right? We, we can get the comfort and the strength we need to love others well through his word, by his spirit, modeled for us by Jesus as we walk this out. Jesus loved his enemies literally to the point of death. He loved you and I even when we were still sinners, when we were still hostile towards him, when we were literally against him. And still now when we sin against him, Jesus still responds to us in love. And Jesus still reminds us of how much he, he, he literally loved to the point of death in people's lives. Like he showed how to value the least of these who are marginalized and who are ostracized and rejected by society. He was shamed by the religious powers because of who he hung out with and who he loved. He, he died and he rose again to show that there was this overcoming power of a life that was like rightly ordered in him if we would trust in him. Like if you put your trust and your faith in him, he can order your life, so much so that everything comes under Christ. And so we look around in our lives and, and we sort of, we, we identify the struggles and, and we see the troubles and the enemies and we, we see the relational strife that you and I go through and we say, God, 
where in the world does our help come from, right? It comes from the Lord. It comes from the creator of heaven. And, and today, church, might I remind you that we need to turn our hearts and our affections, our allegiance, our trust to where it truly belongs, back to the one whose it is to begin with, to this amazing God. And I want to pray for us this morning, and then we're going to spend some time doing communion. Like, what an awesome thing to partake in communion this morning, to remember what it is that Jesus did for us as a church. But I want to pray for us, because, you know, my, I hate using the word my greatest fear, but my concern for the church is that we've compartmentalized our lives so much that it's sort of like there's things that are God's and there's things that are ours. And I don't really want God to have it all. I just want him to have the stuff that's manageable for him to have so that I can control part of it as well. Has anybody traveled to like developing nations? Like you see a desperation in people, right? A desperation where they just like, we need God. Not like, I want God, give me more of God. I need God. He's literally my sustenance. Like, I will not get by without him. I need him to provide literally the meal I'm going to eat tonight for my family. I need him to provide the clothes that I'm going to wear. What Go down the list. I need him to provide for me, him to be my sustenance. And then we live in a country where in all honesty, it's like, I just, God, I just need you to show up on the things I need you to show up for. And then I need you to let me be me and sort of live my life and do the things I want to do on the things that are for me. And like, let me compartmentalize my life a little bit, God. Because I'm just as guilty as you that I, I find myself at times, even in worship this morning, where I'm like, oh, Jesus, you know, like, forgive me of my sins, Lord. Jesus, like, you know where I've fallen short and where I need your help. And I'm sitting there this morning worshiping, and I'm thinking to myself, why do I pray this prayer once a week? <laughs> like, in worship, I'm like, oh, God, you know, like, take care of everything from this past week and make the next week good. It's like every single day I actually need him. I want to be sustained by him. And my heart for you, church, is that we see a church that lives out of desperation for God. Not just like, I want you, but like, I need you. For those of you that don't know Jesus this morning, like, you've got to know that from the beginning of time, his inscription was upon your heart. He's the author. He's the creator. He's the one that made you. And in you giving your life to Jesus, believing that he died on the cross for your sins, that he rose again, that the power of the living God resides in us by way of his Holy Spirit, surrendering our lives to him is giving back to God what's actually his to begin with. That's salvation. He came to take back what was rightfully his and pay the ultimate price for it. You guys pray with me. Jesus, I thank you for this church. I thank you, Jesus, for this privilege it is to serve you, to know you. Jesus, I know that there's people in this room that are waffling back and forth in life with things that they've held as theirs, things that they've given to you. And they feel bifurcated, Lord, between these two sides. And I pray for them right now, Jesus, that you give them the strength, give them the motivation 
to turn all things to you, Jesus. To turn over all things to you. To give you allegiance in all areas of their life. And for us as a church, Jesus, your word says that they will know us by our love for one another. And yet, God, divisions are just rampant these days. And I pray for us, God, that before we cast the first stone, that we be a people that would see others as image bearers of God. Men and women that you want returned rightfully to you. And that the way we treat them, the way we love them, the way we walk with them, the way we converse with them, God, would be in such a way that we desire your best for their life. Instead of just pointing the finger, instead of just seeing them as an enemy, that we would be a people that love the Lord, our God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second to that, God, that we love our neighbors as ourselves. I pray that that would mark our church. I pray as we leave this building that we be cognizant of the fact that the image of the Most High God is upon us and it's literally being bore to the world as we just live our lives in humble service to you, Jesus. I pray you make yourself known in us and through us. I pray that our community would become a better place, not as a result of more money and more things and more jobs, but as a result of the work of the Most High God within a mass of people that have surrendered their lives to you and care more about that than they do anything else that they can attain on this earth. Jesus, bless your church in Jesus.